Hi, everyone. This is Scott. If you want to learn about the world's oldest civilizations, find out how they were rediscovered. Follow the story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra's descendants over ten generations, or take a deep dive into the Iron Age or the Hellenistic Era, then check out the Ancient World Podcast. Available on all podcasting platforms, or go to ancientworldpodcast.com. That's the Ancient World Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 56C, A Royal Funeral, our final episode in the life and times of Ahmosa I, King of Egypt. In 1530 BCE, the city of Thebes was in mourning. High and low, rich and poor, turned out to celebrate the life and lament the passing of Egypt's greatest king in generations. At the age of 35, Neb Pekti Rey Amosa I, unifier of Egypt and smiter of the Hyksos, was gone. The great king's breath had left his body, and the celebrated ruler began his journey to the west. The king was mummified over a period of approximately three months. His organs were removed, dried, and stored. The body was dried with salts, and then wrapped in the finest linen available. Priests and priestesses performed hymns and rituals around the body as it was embalmed, and ensured that malevolent spirits could not attack the king's soul. When that work was completed, the city prepared for the funeral. The funeral procession gathered at the Temple of Luxor. Priests, courtiers, and hired mourners gathered around the royal family and the ornate sled on which the coffin was carried. They began their journey. The procession was ordered in a very specific manner. Certain people had to go at the front because it was their job to prepare the way, to clear the road, and to purify the path ahead. These men carried large jugs filled with water and with milk, which they poured upon the ground. By doing this, they cleaned the sands symbolically, and made them pure enough for the coffin to pass by. Behind them came the woman. Priestesses, singers, and professional mourning women were the second group to lead the procession. The priestesses rattled sistrums towards the sky, while the singers brought a melodic air to the proceedings, all very respectable and symbolic. The hymns would be sung to Osiris, the mythical king of the underworld, and to Isis, his widow. The king's mummy was connected with the god in their songs, just the first of many such connections being made on this day. After the priestesses came the mourners. The priestesses were representatives of the gods, but professional mourners, well, they're another story. These women would throw sand over their heads and pull at their hair, wailing loudly towards the sky. They would tear their dresses, bare their breasts, and beat at their chests in extravagant displays of grief. All very emotional and overblown, but it gave the procession grief and emotion, while still allowing the priestesses and courtiers to maintain their dignity. 
Professional mourners have been part of human society for a long time. Today, they're a bit more rare, but you will still find them in many cultures, such as Taiwan, India, and China. They are hired to give funerals more dramatic effect and emphasis, which can be very important depending on the religious beliefs of those involved. For our Moses procession, these mourners must have been loud. This was a king of Upper and Lower Egypt, mummified to the best standards available, on his way to a splendid afterlife. Nothing but the best would do. That went for the mummy, and it went for his friends. But the most prominent mourners were not friends or courtiers, or even hired whalers. It was the royal family. Amos's funeral was led by his widow, Amosa Nefertari, but also by his son, Jesukarei Amunhotep I, just six years old. Amunhotep led the procession from the riverbank to the foothills west of Thebes. Their destination was the valley of Deir al-Bahari, a horseshoe-shaped valley in which Middle Kingdom officials had built their tombs. This valley was also the place where the now-legendary Montuhotep II had built his tomb, a magnificent temple dominating the valley cleft. But Armosa wasn't going to be buried in one of those. His tomb was far more discreet and anonymous. Instead of a temple, he was going to the west in a secluded sepulchre, hidden somewhere in the hills near to this valley. This tomb is unfortunately now lost, but by a remarkable quirk of history, Amos's mummy and some of his burial items have still survived. We'll talk about those later. The tomb of Amosa was likely a very simple one. Its entrance was a single shaft descending straight down into the bedrock. As the procession came to this entrance, the coffin of the king was taken from its sled. The priests carried it to the doorway of the tomb, and then stood the coffin up, facing to the south. With its face now in the full sunlight of early morning, the mummy and the coffin were ready for the rituals. The primary ritual of an Egyptian funeral is called the opening of the mouth. It is an elaborate ceremony in which the priests would give the mummy its ability to speak, to eat, and to hear in the next world. It was an utterly essential process, without which King Amosa would be left deaf and dumb in the next life. So the priests had to get this right. The opening of the mouth ritual began, as most Egyptian rituals did, with a purification. Those milk jugs and water jugs were sprinkled onto the sands around the tomb's entrance, cleansing the ground and warding off destructive forces. Incense was burned, and the assembled priests and royal family cleaned themselves with oils and changed their dirty clothing for fresh, clean linen. This was necessary for the proper veneration of the deceased king and the protection of his soul from any malevolent influence. Now, the priests would place a linen shroud around the mummy, symbolically clothing it in the garments which it would wear for eternity. Jewellery, collars, amulets, all of these would be placed upon the coffin's shoulders. Then, the priests would sacrifice two bulls, preparing meat and beer and cereal for the king to consume. Only problem was, he couldn't eat them. Not yet. Amunhotep now stepped forward. The little king was clad in the pristine linen of the high priest, a role that he would bear for the rest of his life. 
As he came forward, he uttered a simple phrase, Ak i ma i su, I enter that I may see him. A simple phrase, but one that began the most sacred ritual he would perform in his life. A ritual to remake his father into a god, and to secure the legitimacy of his own reign. A ritual to protect and sustain Egypt for eternity. I enter that I may see him. Once Amunhotep had uttered this phrase, the priests began their duties. They began to sprinkle water around the coffin, in each of the cardinal directions, east, west, south, and north. As they poured, one of the priests uttered the following words, Pure, pure for Amosa. Your purity is the purity of Horus. Your purity is the purity of Seth. Your purity is the purity of Thoth. Your purity is the purity of Anti Dunanwi. Four gods, each aligned with one of the cardinal points Anti Dunanwi in the east, Thoth in the west, Seth the south, and Horus the north. Amunhotep and his priests made offerings to all of them, sprinkling water on the sands and giving the gods the luxuries that they desired water, milk, salt, and incense. Protecting Armosa from each cardinal direction, the worshippers now began to lower the coffin into the tomb. It was slung from ropes and lowered into the shaft, where porters would carry it into the burial chamber. As they lowered it down, the priests called forth, My father, my father. Once the coffin was placed within the burial chamber, Amunhotep changed his costume. Attendants draped a leopard skin over his shoulders the traditional garment of a high priest, a sem-priest. Acting in his guise as Egypt's chief priest, the six-year-old approached the mummy of his father. Quote, the sem-priest touches the mouth with his little finger. He says, I have come as your embracer. I am Horus. I have pressed your mouth for you. I am your son whom you love. At this point in the ritual, Amunhotep had taken on the guise of Horus the eternal king of Egypt itself. But in order to complete the ritual, the little six-year-old now needed the support of his mother. Amosa Nefertari stepped forward. She came in the role of Isis, the wife of Osiris and mother of Horus. She came to support her son, as Amunhotep now put his arms around the coffin and embraced it as his father. Amosa's casket and mummy was protected by Horus, and at this point the ritual became almost a full-swing reenactment of the Isis and Osiris myth. Isis began that proceedings by saying, Bring us a goat and cut off its head. Bring us a goose and cut off its head. For those who might be worried, there's actually surprisingly good evidence that this sacrifice was done in a symbolic fashion. Tomb artifacts in the shape of goat's legs survive today, suggesting that sometimes the sacrifice was more of a proxy than an actual offering. Priests would present wooden versions of the animal parts as a substitute, the idea being that a representation was as effective as the real thing. At the end of the day, the offering was the important part, didn't matter whether it was a genuine animal or a piece of wood. So it's possible that no animals were harmed. But realistically, this was a royal affair with all of the wealth of the state at hand, so it's likely that the sacrifice for Amosa was real. 
For poorer individuals, though, and those conscious of animals in general, there were many options more palatable to our own sensibilities. Amunhotep as Horus now took up the goat's leg. He touched it to the mummy's mouth and said, O Amosa, I have come as your embracer. I am Horus. I have pressed your mouth for you. I am your son whom you love, and I have opened your mouth for you. I am the one who fashioned his father's image for his mother, who is weeping for the deceased. I am the one who fashioned it on behalf of she who will unite with the deceased. On behalf of she who will unite with the deceased. Well, this is where things get really fun. At this point in the ritual, Amosa Nefertari, or Isis, stepped forward to reenact the moment of conception. In the story, Isis reassembled Osiris's body after his brutal murder. She lay with it on the banks of the river, and there conceived their son Horus. The cycle of birth and rebirth was forever solidified by this deed, as Isis proved that death was no barrier to new life, and that the deceased king could live again through his son. Did Amos and Nefertari climb on top of the coffin and enact the ritual? Well, anything is possible with the Egyptians. The surviving records don't tell us specifically whether she did or didn't, merely that the woman was one who unites with her deceased husband. I'll leave it up to you to decide. Either way, Amunhotep and Amos and Nefertari had now reached the most important step of the ritual. The little king stepped forward and said, O Amosa, I have pressed your mouth to your bones for you. For you I have raised the sky goddess Nut up above. She has emerged from your brow. She has brought you all the gods, so that you may save them and make them live. You have come into being in your strength, to select your protection of life with those around you, to guard against your death. You have come into being as the sustenance of all gods, and arisen as the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, with power over all gods, and even their sustenance. Osiris and Shu, the son of Atum Re, they are both Amosa. As he lives, you live. Sharpness is yours, glory is yours, homage is yours, power is yours. If that's a mouthful, don't sweat it. It is complicated. Basically, what Amunhotep did was invoke the major deities of the Pantheon. Speaking their names and associating them specifically with Amosa, Amunhotep ensured that his father would join together with their power. He would now have their protection, the protection of Atum, of Re, of Amun, Shu, and Osiris. He was with them, and he was them. Amosa had become a god in the incredibly convoluted and complex way that only the ancients truly understood. At last the ritual came to its climax. Amunhotep, Horus, took a special instrument made of iron or wood, and touched it to the lips of the coffin. He said, Open the mouth of Amosa with this tool, so that he may walk and speak with his body before the nine gods in the great mansion of Re, so that he may take up your white crown before Horus, lord of the nobility. The mummy was awakened, his faculties were restored, and his power in the afterlife was assured. The king and his priests now presented Amos's coffin to the assembled entourage. They adorned it with a shroud, and placed an ostrich feather upon its brow. They touched food to its lips, and said, 
purified, purified is the offering table, with cool water and incense. Make an offering with bread, an offering with beer, an offering with cool water. Have the choice cuts that are conveyed placed at the front of the offering table for Amosa. Then the king is the pure one. Amunhotep and his assistants placed the coffin into its sarcophagus. The air was thick with the smells and smoke of incense. They closed the lid of the sarcophagus and placed a garland upon it. With this done, the young king turned to the assembled entourage and declared, The image is complete, meaning that the mummy was now secured and protected within its sacred chamber. The entourage left. The priests burned more incense and then left themselves. Finally, little Amunhotep was alone. He made his final obeisance before his father, and then backed out of the chamber. As he left, he swung a palm frond upon the ground, sweeping away any footprints. The chamber was sealed, the tomb was closed, and Nempechti Re Amosa, smiter of the Hexos, unifier of the two lands, passed into eternity. As I mentioned earlier, the tomb of Amosa is now lost. But we still have Amosa's mummy, and looking at this, we can tell a few things about him. The deceased king was just 35 when he died. He had a full head of hair, black, thick, and wavy, just like his father Sekinenre. In fact, the first person to examine the mummies of these two kings noted that, quote, the face of Amosa exactly resembles that of Sekinenre, and the likeness alone would proclaim the affinity even if we were ignorant of the close relationship. Well, maybe this examiner spoke too soon. Chicago Egyptologist Edward F. Wente and Michigan orthodontist Jim Harris studied the skeletal remains of many 18th dynasty mummies. They tried to identify relationships based on skull features, particularly teeth, which can be affected by genetic inheritance. Long story short, Wente and Harris concluded that at least two of the 18th dynasty mummies were incorrectly identified. One of them was, yeah, Amosa I. So the mummy of Amosa might not actually be the mummy of Amosa. If it is not, it is likely someone else of the same family, perhaps a lesser prince or cousin. For some reason, this mummy might have been later mistaken for Amosa and reburied as though it was the king himself. How that particular misunderstanding occurred is the story for another day. The tomb chamber of Amosa was sealed in 1530 BCE. As the mud bricks were laid into place and stamped with the name of the king, the two lands officially and finally passed into the hands of his son. Amosa himself would now become legend and live as Osiris as long as his mortuary cult was sustained. Amosa had ended one era of Egypt's political history, but he could never have known that as his mummy was laid to rest, an era of Egypt's religious history was also ending. See, the king had made a decision late in his reign, a decision that would affect the funerary cults of Egypt for the next 500 years. What had he done? Well, oddly enough, he had built a pyramid. While the king was buried in his sepulchre west of Thebes, a ritual was taking place far to the north. The priests of Abydos were making offerings in a temple to Amosa, 
a temple that was attached to a large ceremonial pyramid. This pyramid had no tomb, no burial chamber, just a series of temples arrayed on its perimeter, dedicated to the king and his family. Why Abydos? Well, the king put his pyramid here to connect himself with Osiris, and to connect with the great rulers of the 12th dynasty, some of whom had put their tombs here. The fact that Armosa had chosen a pyramid was really just a bit of traditionalism, in an otherwise extraordinary life. But this monument was the last pyramid ever commissioned by a native Egyptian king. The age of pyramids was now ending, as the costly, time-consuming and conspicuous monuments were relegated to the past. A new age had begun for Egyptian kings, and their relationship to the gods, the people, and their families was going to change along with it. So Amos's successor, little six-year-old Amunhotep I, was entering into a new world. How would he handle it? Well, that's a story for another day. The Egyptian History Podcast will be back early in the new year. In a way, it's good timing. As we lay Amosa to rest, we are closing the chapter on one period of Egyptian history and beginning a whole new one. So, a new year brings new beginnings, for the story and for the podcast. Join me soon. But for now, take care of yourselves and those you love. We'll see you then. Bye.